Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. By some measures, nearly 90% of Canadians 65 and older use the internet every day. And yet the design of new technologies and platforms often leaves out the needs of seniors, as well as their desires and interests. So if older people are using technology, why aren't they factored into the design of the technology? This time in an episode that first aired in April 2023, Confronting Digital Ageism. So ageism refers to the stereotypes, the prejudices, and the discrimination towards others based on their age, or it can be internalized and it can be towards ourselves as well. My name is Charlene Chu. I am an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Lawrence S. Bloomberg Faculty of Nursing, and I focus on technology and the ways it is used by older adults. The assumptions that we have and the stereotypes we have about older adults as being technophobic, resistant to integrating new technologies into their everyday life stem, I think, from broader social and cultural age-based stereotypes and ageist perceptions that we have about older adults in general. My name is Nicole Dalmer, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Health, Aging and Society at McMaster University. And I'm also the Associate Director of the Gilbrea Centre for Studies in Aging at McMaster University. There's a term, compassionate ageism, that's been used to describe a paternalistic idea that aging people are at high risk and deserve special policies to help and protect them. Older adults sometimes can be seen as um, not being technologically literate, technologically savvy. They're scared of using technology. They're easily overwhelmed with technology. You know, as this period of later life is being a time of dependency, of frailty, of being risk prone and, and this period of general decline. In their work, both Nicole and Charlene have observed how the idea of compassionate ageism, like many other common societal beliefs about aging, has made its way into the technologies we use. And that's how we arrive at the concept of digital ageism. The ways these stereotypes and prejudices toward older people can be encoded or amplified through the design and marketing of our devices. And so because of this, they can be considered invisible technology users by people who design technology. They're not the main target of different technologies that are being designed. They're mostly designing for younger users and ignoring the needs and wants of older adults that might also be using the technology itself. We'll come back to Charlene later in the show. But first, Nicole helps us get beyond assumptions about how older adults use technology and understand how aging populations actually engage with digital tech. I think some of the general perceptions that we carry about older age in general, there's so many ripple effects and we find those 
in technology. So the stereotypes of, of older adults as being dependent or frail, they're taken up into the design of technologies. And they also inform our thinking about older adults engagement with technologies, you know, as being uh, the brunt of the joke as being technophobic. Yeah, I think too, because of our frustrating perceptions of older adults engagement with tech, they're also excluded from tech conversations from being part of kind of tech design conversations as as well. And not only does this result sometimes in technology that does not align or or fit with older adults actual lived needs, this mm-hmm. also can have really serious implications for how older adults think about themselves and their skills as it relates to technology. So we can see some internalized technology-related ageism amongst older adults because of what we see in comics or the news or in movies, for example. Could you give me some examples of what um, those problematic designs look like in tech? You know, I think so much of the technology that we have right now for older adults is really centered on supporting or inspiring older adults to age in place, meaning to age in their homes for as long as possible mostly to avoid really costly relocation to, to long-term care. Costly not only for older adults, mm-hmm. but costly, of course, for, for governments and, and, and the public purse strings. So a lot of those technologies that we're seeing for aging in place are various surveillance and monitoring devices in the home. And I see these as really sometimes quite invasive devices that can mm-hmm. disrupt older adults' routines. So you might have sensors in the bed to let folks, adult children, for, for example, know when their parents are getting in and out of bed. You might have a sensor on the fridge to know how often it's opened or closed. Yeah. And so these technologies, I suppose, are really changing how we feel about the home. The home is this really intimate space. And these various aging in place devices in the home rely on surveillance and monitoring and also then really change the home from a place of being really intimate and, and private to being quite public. And so there's issues of privacy that need to be changed as well. Yeah. I also think, too, a lot of these devices in the home, for example, you're sharing a, a lot of data with a lot of folks, whether you're doing so knowingly or not. And you're also sharing data, perhaps with family members. And I'm always curious to know how much do you want your adult children, for example, to know how often you're using the washroom or whether or not you've yeah. opened the fridge. And so not only are you sharing potentially really sensitive and intimate data, but I think this type of data, too, can also really change relationships. Uh, There's so much power in this kind of data that I think it necessarily can really disrupt or or alter relationships between family members as well. Yeah. But it does make you wonder whether there are ways to address those sort of privacy surveillance concerns in the design of the technology. Like, are there ways to make them more privacy focused that maybe are not done because those privacy concerns are not taken as seriously as they might be? I think that's that's a great point. I think, again, if we were integrating older adults into some of the design conversations from the very get-go, I, I wonder if some of these issues would be tackled perhaps differently. You know, in this one article by Clara Barrage, what I found really interesting, but also I find a bit horrifying in a way, too, was that older adults were willing to give up their privacy with the installation of various monitors and sensors in their home if it meant that they wouldn't be relocated to a long-term care facility. And so I think that speaks, unfortunately, to how we come to view long-term care facilities and and long-term care in in general 
Mm-hmm. And I also find that speaks, I suppose, to a broader issue where I find sometimes technology is viewed as this kind of omnipotent solution for a lot of the quote unquote problems of aging. Yeah. But I think it sometimes is used a bit as a band-aid that allows us to maybe avoid looking at the root of the problem or going more deeply to consider the nuances of what sustainable care looks like. And it's not necessarily applying a technology or a device. It might mean a, a human yeah, yeah. What about technologies that are designed for the general public? Do you see ageism come into play in that situation? I find older adults sometimes aren't even considered, I suppose, in some of the, I'd call them ageless technologies. We don't even see them in the marketing or images, for example, of those technologies, even though mm. I would say they're the ones that I see most often being used by older adults, you know, various reading apps or digital kilns and YouTube clips and things like that, things where we don't necessarily put an age label on. And yet, at the same time, we don't always think about older adults as accessing them or using them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about teaching my father to use the computer, which he wanted to use, not really to use the internet, but to, to write. And he he had a lot of trouble with double clicking, just like the fine motor aspect of double clicking and got very frustrated with using the computer until he learned other ways of, you know, opening an application, for example. And it wasn't that he, you know, couldn't learn the technology. It was that he had, you know, a mobility issue with that specific thing. I think that's a, a great point. There are, of course, certainly bodily physical and cognitive changes that take place as we age. But I think there are ways and that we can think about making technologies more accessible. And it's not that it necessarily has to be because of age that we're making it more accessible. I think a lot of principles of universal design, for example, benefit a wide swath of the population, not only older adults, for example. So some of those, you know, thinking of different ways to learn to double click, for example, it would be helpful for those with perhaps different mobility limitations that aren't necessarily relegated to later life. Mm -hmm. I understand you ran focus groups with older adults about their tech use. So what did you learn from that? That was a complete joy, I must say. That was uh, while I was doing my postdoctoral fellowship at Trent University. And I I do have to give mention to my colleagues, Kirsten Ellison, Stephen Katz, and Barb Marshall. So we spoke to 29 older adults just to get a sense of what technologies they're using in their everyday life. And we found our conversations so riveting and interesting, I think because we often don't give people of a certain age kind of the opportunity to share their experiences. So, you know, as older adults were sharing, they really spoke to this wide inventory of devices and apps that they are using, using Zoom to connect with church friends. As I mentioned before, using a digital kiln, Someone makes kinetic art and he uses YouTube, for example, to share videos about that. A lot of FaceTime with relatives or WhatsApp to to, connect with relatives, paint by number apps and and a lot of e-reading apps as, as well. What was interesting, though, even though they really presented themselves as being quite tech savvy, Mm-hmm. Throughout the focus groups, there was this thread of participants characterizing themselves in technophobic terms, mm. you know, calling themselves dinosaurs or saying, I really have no idea about apps, but then going on to list banking, bill paying, weather apps, right. following the news. So there's this interesting disconnect between what they are doing and what perhaps they're conceptualizing themselves as doing that I, I can't help but think is tied into perhaps that that general kind of social conceptualization we have about older adults' understandings with technology. 
yeah. from the the focus groups, I was really impressed, I suppose might be the word, with the level of of awareness about kind of planned obsolescence of devices, a mm-hmm. frustration with digital capitalism and environmental impacts. And yet they'd sort of internalized this mm-hmm. notion of themselves as technophobic in some way. Can you break that down a little bit? Like what's the mechanism by where there's that disconnect between the way they're using and the way they're bringing critical faculties to using technology and yet seeing them, themselves as quote unquote dinosaurs? I, I can't help but think that it really has to do with various media messages that they must hear over time that older adults are, I suppose, technophobic in a way, and they internalize that. You know, they're not grouped in the tech savvy or the digital native group, you know, in the news or, or in policy documents, for example. Right. Even though I would argue so many of these older adults have actually grown up with so many variations of technologies, thinking about programming or, or working the DOS system, for example. So they actually have a lot of skills. But I'm wondering if how we present those skills now, it almost doesn't come to quote unquote count as being tech savvy. Mm. From the Spark Archives, 2019, Ian Hosking. University of Cambridge. Seniors. I think that's just too simplistic a term. It's almost like saying people. Mm. So there are seniors that embrace technology. They love technology. They find it liberating. And there are those that are literally scared of it. And it's that starting that is so, so critical with the senior market. We know from the research that if you get early success, that starts to build confidence and starts to come overcome those fears. So I think we need to look at products in terms of their functions, but we need to look at it in terms of a journey of use. Mm. How do you design that whole journey, that whole experience, and not just focus on the product? And I think that's one of the keys for senior people and what will work for them. So we want to teach to design inclusively so that it becomes the normal way of thinking about the design of products and services. And what we did is we took in uh, a series of lessons that were done over a week and we aged the pupils by giving them glasses that blurred their vision and gloves that restricted their dexterity. And this gave them an insight and an empathy with the older population. And we got them to systematically understand that and also looked into the demographics of that aging population and how aging affects the use of products. And we know from our research in this school and other schools that it has a profound effect on how they see the older population and it's extraordinary the empathy that that derives and we think that empathy is one of the key aspects of good design Mm -hmm. that if you can empathize not sympathize but empathize and work with that older cohort that leads to better solutions Young and today we're talking about ageism in tech from design to application. Right now, my guest is Nicole Dalmer, a researcher at the intersection of aging and technology. Last year, you wrote a paper on the dynamics of power in digital health and care technologies, and you note that technological care to age in place has been pushed as this is a quote cost-effective way to enhance independent security and health, which certainly sound like worthy goals. So, what are your concerns about this sort of technology-first approach? I think sometimes we we have a techno-solutionism approach when it comes to later life with technology presented really as the ultimate solution 
for the quote-unquote problem of, of aging populations. And we use technology for aging populations and for their family caregivers and their care networks as a way to promote autonomy and independence, which sounds fantastic. But I suppose that a lot of these systems rely on you sticking to a particular routine in your home, for example. You have to open your fridge for breakfast, lunch, and dinner to demonstrate that you have eaten. And if you don't open your fridge, perhaps you went out for lunch, it signals a deviation from that routine. And then a signal or some sort of alarm is sent to perhaps your, your adult daughter, your adult son, or, or some, some other individual. And so I find this, it really keeps you then to a routine. And that ultimately, I suppose, undermines your independence and your autonomy in your home. You're not completely mm -hmm. free to mm -hmm. be uh, in your home. I think also with a promotion of technology in later life too, you know, a lot of my, my work previously looked at care work. And I think sometimes we really miss the work that tech devices require. Not only does someone need to make sure things are charged or, or updated, but there's a lot of labor too in making sense of the data or numbers that are being outputted from some of these devices or figuring out when a deviation from that routine, for example, if a fridge isn't opened, when does that matter? When does action need to be taken? And that care is being, of course, downloaded onto individuals, family members, the older adults themselves, too. So I think there's a lot of considerations and I suppose gray areas that we need to be talking about while we're simultaneously promoting technologies as being such a supportive and, and helpful tool in, in later life. I don't mean to vilify technology at all, but I think there's a lot of questions that sometimes we aren't asking that I think can come to really bear on older adults. And the last thing I might say too, is that, you know, so many of the devices that we're implementing, they're, they're tracking a lot of health issues, heart rate, blood sugar, uh, urine output, for example. And I think we also mm -hmm. need to be mindful of what some of these technologies aren't tracking or aren't able to measure. It's hard to to measure pleasure or fun or leisure or enjoyment. And those are still such important parts of our everyday lives as we age throughout the entire life course too. You know, I, I don't think in later life we're devoid of, of wanting to have fun. And it was so interesting in the focus groups that I alluded to earlier, only one person actually brought up a health related device that was an important part of their everyday life. And so I think Older adults are more than their bodily outputs and, and numbers. They're whole humans. Yeah. And sometimes I think technologies are just looking at the bits and pieces instead of the whole, the whole self. Mm -hmm. I was really struck in that article by how much the design of the technologies overlooked social context and in particular power relationships, for mm -hmm. example, how people might react to feeling surveilled or that, as you mentioned, it doesn't account for people who need to recharge the sensors or whatever. So why are those sort of more social contextual aspects of design not being considered? That's a great question. I'm wondering if part of the answer might come down to that that kind of work and those kinds of elements are quite gendered and, and might fall more so on women. And, and of course, women's work, especially care work, is often invisible, often devalued. And those individuals who are creating devices, are creating the codes and programming, 
are by and large white, they're younger, and they're men. And and we all have inherent biases in us. And so I'm wondering if in the development of some of these technologies, they're not maliciously, just inadvertently not anticipating all of the elements that might be required for devices to be more fulsomely uh, used and enjoyed in the home as well. And I wonder too, Mm -hmm. if that might be why we see you know, those pendant alarms and, and a variety of those devices that we see for older adults are so aesthetically unpleasing, I suppose, too. I think, yeah. you know, as we age, I, I would love to continue to uh, insert or invite my style into whatever devices, be they medical or mobility or other support aids. I, I hope that they can stay abreast with what I like, but I don't mm-hmm. see that to be the case right now. And perhaps... That's yet another reason to include and involve older adults in the design process from the get-go in the uh, kind of research problem or question phase as well. Is it even a problem that needs to be solved right now? And does it need to be solved or met with the technology? Yeah. I understand you're part of a seven-year study called Aging in Data, looking at the intersection of age studies and critical data studies. And you explore the relationship between older adults and their uh, data spheres. Could mm-hmm. you tell me about that and what some of the insights you've come away with so far are? Definitely. So that's a quite a large project with international partners, and that's led by uh, <laughs> Dr. Kim Sachuk at uh, Concordia University. And so at McMaster University, where I'm based, working with Dr. Cal Birick and Dr. Stephanie Hatsifilolithis, Our first phase in in our study was trying to give voice and an opportunity for older adults to share their understandings of what is data? What does data mean to them? Just like tech design, I think older adults are really often disregarded or excluded in the study and analysis of digitization practices. So we wanted to really more fulsomely understand how older adults interpret or act upon their data in their everyday lives. So we had a qualitative survey that we handed out around the country, and we had 71 older adults answer uh, that survey. We're still waiting through the responses, but there's this interesting kind of friction or division in the terms that participants associated with data. Mm -hmm. Some really associate data with terms like facts, trustworthy, useful, convenient, informative, and that really underlies a sense of confidence, I suppose, and optimism surrounding data. But there was another large group of participants and their associations with data, I think, hint at an underlying uneasiness or wariness with data. And they had words such as possibly not secure, limited, personal, beware of scams, where is this data going, who wants it, and what's it going to be used for? What really uh, shone through was that participants almost craved an opportunity to share what they're thinking through and, Mm -hmm. and with as they're grappling with living in an increasingly datafied society. And they used a lot of the survey space. Everything was open-ended. So they used the space to work out their own uncertainties or present some of their Mm -hmm. guesswork as to what they're working through. So I I think this is just one step in in the study. But I think it was such a, a revealing opportunity, I suppose, in that older adults really do want to be thinking about this, talking about this, and also having the opportunities to ask questions in a comfortable space. Yeah. We've been talking about some of the built-in assumptions and biases here. So how do we build better, more inclusive technology? Well, one of, I suppose, the answers might lie in this concept of co-design or participatory design. And as I've maybe been kind of touching on throughout this interview, it's really involving older adults 
throughout the design process, from the question to prototyping to testing it out and mm-hmm. ensuring that the device reflects a need, that it's usable, that it's functional. And I think, though, importantly, because one area in age studies that we sometimes lack or need to work on is involving a diverse group of older adults. Most older adults in our research are often fairly affluent and, and are white, and, and that carries certain privileges. And so I think as we're working on integrating co-design in, in tech studies and in age studies and in, in, in various realms, I think we also really need to be working with older adults from various classes, socioeconomic statuses of, of race and ethnicity backgrounds, because those all come to bear on how technology is or, or isn't made accessible. And, and that carries through the entire life course and can impact different skills that older adults have or don't have in later life. Yeah. So, Nicole, as we've looked at all these different facets of elders' experience of tech, what impact do digital infrastructures more broadly have on feelings of connectedness in later life? I think it generally, I would say, enhance. And, I, you know, as we saw during the pandemic, access to technologies was fairly essential, I suppose, in maintaining some semblance of, of social connection. Yeah. When we're thinking about maybe the digital divide, which some older adults may be facing, it's not only having access to different digital infrastructures like a router and a a modem and a computer, Mm -hmm. but we also need to be thinking about the skills that allow us to fulsomely explore the internet and its, its various offerings as well. So I think technology in and of itself can certainly afford connection. But it, it's not for everyone. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back to uh, those focus groups. And there was this one participant, her pseudonym that she gave herself was Sundiva. And she really resisted integrating technology. And that was not because she was technophobic. Um, she certainly was tech savvy, but she resisted using technology because she wanted to be more present in her everyday life and be more present in her engagements with people. And she viewed technology as sometimes interfering with being authentically connected. So for some folks, tech might be a fantastic way to feel socially connected and to maintain connections. For those who are refusing technologies or are opting to, you know, find connections in in in-person interactions, I would just caution us against necessarily labeling those folks as being resistant to technologies or technophobic. They're just finding other opportunities that work for them in their everyday life. Nicole, thanks so much for your insights on this. Oh, it's been a treat. Thank you, Nora. Nicole Dalmer is an assistant professor of health, aging and society and associate director of the Gilbrea Center for Studies in Aging at McMaster University. From the Spark Archives, 2014, we drop in at the Elder Technology Assistance Group. See how you have the camera here on FaceTime? That's what you press, yeah. And there it goes, it starts dialing. I'm sorry I wake you up. I wake you up? No. No? I woke a while ago, yeah. Okay. Okay, bye, have fun. Thank you, bye-bye. That's my niece. I'm still on. Okay, close, close. Technology is good, it's a lot of help, you know. One way, the communication, you know. Communication is very important for the people, you know. Banking, for instance, I haven't get to that stage yet. Enter banking on the computer. Privacy, I don't like to divulge your private history or events on the computer. 
It's not everything I want the world to know about. Move them into the folder. That's the way. Done. Done. So you just did 12 messages all at once. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and this week on Spark, an episode that first aired in 2023. We're looking at the pervasive age-related stereotypes that have seeped into the technologies we use and what that means for aging populations. Over the years on the show, we've talked a lot about algorithmic bias, particularly when it comes to gender and race, and how, as we rely more and more on AI, that poses a big problem. But what about ageism in AI systems? My research at the University of Toronto focuses on digital ageism in different technologies like AI and explores the different ways that could lead to how technologies would amplify ageism. That's Charlene Chu again. In 2022, she led a study about digital ageism, specifically in the context of artificial intelligence, looking at the challenges and potential it holds for older adults. While the area remains largely unexplored, Charlene says in recent years there's been an increased focus on the experiences of aging people using technology. The challenge is, if data is used to train AI systems, are older users even represented in the data? So COVID-19 did bring a lot of attention to digital ageism because the COVID-19 pandemic accelerated everybody's use in technology. Sure. From grocery shopping, to seeing our doctors, from communicating with others, older adults also turned to technology as well during the pandemic. And so this shone a light on the ways in which technology may have been at a disadvantage to some and at an advantage to others. The World Health Organization also wrote a policy brief on ageism in AI, speaking about the ways that different technologies may have impacted older adults in relation to younger people. So an example of this in Ontario, people needed to sign up for a COVID-19 vaccination uh, on an online portal using a website. And so this website, back in December of 2020, when they were targeting more high-risk groups, was really difficult for older adults to use. And you can remember, and I'm sure many of your listeners may remember how difficult it was during those first few months to even try to secure an appointment. Mm -hmm. And so there were lots of uh, Facebook groups and on social media about vaccination hunters. And so if you were digitally savvy, you were able to jump the queue and understand where you could go to get a walk-in vaccination, even though you may not have been um, somebody in a high-risk group, for example. And so this is just a common example of how technology disadvantaged one group, but was an advantage to others who were more digitally savvy. So why do you think older adults are disproportionately impacted by bias in, in technology in particular? 
So my research team identified these key aspects around how ageism in our society could seep into technology and be perpetuated by technology. And so this happens in several different ways, but we kind of identified four key aspects of what we call cycles of injustice. So these are different aspects that are included in how ageism is then perpetuated in technology and um, AI. So the first is ageism in general. So in society, we have the societal representations about older adults, and then that leads into the design of the technology itself. So this includes who comes up with the design, uh, the ideation of the technology, the methodology and the development process of the technology itself. The third is the technology and data that is being collected and the technology that's being implemented and distributed. And then fourth is the harm that would come from this. So the way that societal representation would seep into technology would be um, perhaps the people who are designing the technology have um, an ageist representation of what older adults look like or what older adults need. And so then they end up building technologies that reinforce some of those negative stereotypes and in turn can reinforce what society and the developers may have assumed to begin with. If the technology itself is difficult to use, then you're going to have less older adults using it. And so that might reinforce the stereotype that older adults don't like to use technology. So hence the cycles and cycles of injustice, because it's almost like a vicious circle in a way. Exactly. So the technological, individual, and social biases all interact, and they end up producing and basically mutually reinforcing each other in order to perpetuate ageism. Yeah. I know that a lot of your work concerns artificial intelligence in particular. So how do age-related biases present themselves in AI systems? The cycles of injustice that we look at in our work is also represented in uh, AI in that a lot of the modeling and algorithms that are being designed and developed are often done by younger people who are then using data that is publicly available or large amounts of data to build their models and train their models. The problem is that a lot of these data sets often don't include a lot of older adults. And so the algorithms that they are designing aren't as accurate for older people. One of the pieces of research that we did was we looked at um, a website that was called AI Algorithm Watch, which is basically a repository of the different uh, guiding principles and guiding documents around fairness in AI and making sure that AI is developed in a responsible manner. And so we looked at 146 different documents that were focused documents about how AI systems could be used and built in an ethical manner. And we found that only about 20% of these documents from the AI ethics guideline global inventory even mentioned age as a bias. Hmm. Whereas almost all of the documents mentioned gender related bias, uh, race related bias. And so there isn't the same amount of focus on how AI 
could disproportionately impact older adults in the same way as racial bias or gender-related bias. Yeah. And why do you think that is? I mean, I have to admit, even on Spark, where we've talked a lot about bias in machine learning, algorithmic bias, Mm -hmm. it's taken us until now to talk about the implications in the context of ageism. So why do you think there's that visibility gap about ageism as a problem? I think because older adults are referred to as invisible users in the literature, so this alludes to their exclusion in the process of technology design, in the ideation of technology, you know, the interests and values of older adults are also then invisible. So a lot of technology that is then developed comes from a very biomedical model where older adults are seen as people who suffer from chronic illnesses. And a lot of the technology that is designed for them is about healthcare management. And rarely are the technologies focused on things like joy, pleasure, hobbies, leisure. So instead, a lot of these technologies are then created for older adults that tend to reinforce this biomedical lens. And then Because of that, it ends up targeting older adults who then do have chronic illnesses. Yeah. The data then that is generated from these technologies then reinforce the fact that older adults will only have chronic illnesses because the technologies that are used are only targeting this very small portion of older adults. So then the data is now only representative of a very small sliver of older adults. When we think about what does it mean to age uh, well or to actively age in a, in a healthy way that is devoid of chronic illness, it's very difficult to find a data set that would reflect that in older adults. Um, this data gap or this data disparity is also apparent in a number of different data sets. So for example, we looked at uh, very commonly used facial recognition data sets. So we looked at seven of them from our literature review. And what we found was from these seven facial image data sets that are commonly used to build algorithms um, to recognize people's faces and uh, for age estimation, these data sets that would have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of images, you know, the most, the, the most commonly used one has over 400,000 images and there is 0.001% of images that represent older adults. Wow. So when you have this data disparity, it's very difficult to generate algorithms that are then accurate and can work as well for older adults because you just don't have that data to help train these models. Yeah. And it's particularly acute in machine learning because it's relying on the data to do the training. And then I guess if it's not being put into practice with older people, then you're still not getting the data after the fact. Exactly. And the other thing that we noted was that across these different data sets, the definition and how the data is labeled also varied from database to database. So sometimes older adults, you know, were labeled as 50 plus. In other times they were labeled as 60 plus. In other times they were labeled as 70 plus. So there really is no consistency around understanding about what an older adult is. We found that the category for older adults was very wide. 
So where you would have facial images and the categories would be, for example, 20 to 25, 26 to 30, 31 to 35, you then would have a huge gap of 20 years for older adults, 30 years for older adults. And so again, you're not getting that accuracy. And so it's not going to work as well for older people. From the Spark Archives, 2019, Chip Connolly, founder of the Modern Elder Academy. There's a societal narrative around aging, which is you hit your midlife and you have a difficult time, you have a crisis, and then after midlife, all you have to look forward to is disease and decrepitude. <laughs> and the thing that's interesting is that the, the U-curve of happiness, which is a social science set of studies around the world that showed that the lowest point of happiness in adulthood is around age 45, it starts getting better from there on. And so what we realize is like, gosh, people in their 70s are happier than the 60s, 60s are happier than the 50s, and 50s are happier than 40s. But a lot of people don't know that. And so there's a reframe that needs to go on, you know, around midlife to help you understand what's next for you. You also need to actually look at what have you learned? A lot of people don't realize they've built some mastery or some wisdom that they could repurpose in a new industry. For example, I was a hospitality leader and all of a sudden I'm in a tech company, Airbnb. I started there at age 52. I was twice the age of the average employee there. I never felt like an elder and I, I would distinguish between elder and elderly. Elderly tends to be your last 10 or 15 years of a life. But I was an elder relative to these people half my age. And all of a sudden, people started calling me the modern elder. And so what I learned quickly was a modern elder is as curious as they are wise. And so I had to be as much of a learner being in a tech company for the first time as much as I was the teacher with my leadership experience and hospitality experience. I'm Nora Young. Today on Spark, we're talking about how ageism manifests itself in the technology we use and the implications of this bias on older adults. Right now, my guest is Charlene Chu, a researcher looking at the ways older adults use technology. Technology and AI are ubiquitous in our society these days. We can't access our basic needs. Our social determinants of health are also intertwined with the ability to be able to use technology. The ability to access your pension, to find a job, to pay your bills, to find housing. A lot of these things are mediated by being able to use technology. And so it becomes an ethical issue when that medium in how we access some of our basic needs and services are then at an advantage to some people and at a disadvantage to others, mm-hmm. where it's easier for some people who are more digitally savvy, who can afford different technologies, who can afford, um, you know, high speed internet, who have access to the internet, that they are more able to access some of these services. Um, so that really speaks to the digital divide that can be um, emphasized through technologies. Yeah. The other thing that we found during COVID-19 is in long-term care homes that often are places where older adults live. Many of these homes don't have basic Wi-Fi. And where we had older adults who were 
um, unable to see their families, have their families visit them. And the only means in which they could connect with their loved ones was through technology. And so without access to basic internet, we basically are leaving a lot of people behind. Mm -hmm. I know you created something called an Exer game, which is an immersive game that uh, encourages physical activity. Can you tell me about that? So one of the projects that we're working on is an Exer gaming platform. So this was designed with older adults and for older adults in that the concept of the Exer gaming platform was ideated by older adults. So the problem that we looked at was... Why are older adults who live in long-term care spending 80 to 90% of their day in sedentary activities, which is what the literature shows? And when we tried to tackle this problem, what we came up against was that they felt like there weren't enough engaging activities that allowed them to interact with others to have cognitive stimulation as well as engage them physically. And what we heard from staff was that they have a limited amount of space, a limited amount of resources um, to be able to offer all of these different activities that um, might have been of interest to older adults. And so uh, we came up with this idea that we would work alongside staff families and residents. And we came up with a platform that is essentially a set of tiles that are easy to clean, easy to use, easy to store. Um, and these tiles are programmed so that when you place them on the ground, they automatically will snap together and they can form different configurations for older adults to engage in with different games that allows them to then, you know, get up out of the chair and walk if they're able to walk or play tic-tac-toe by mobilizing around the board, for example. And so we're currently evaluating this technology at this moment. But it's a really interesting technology because we are countering some of these ageist stereotypes that, number one, older adults and the people who work in long-term care are not interested in innovation. They're not interested in technology. The second being that older adults may not be interested in games and in fun activities and that they may be incapable of being involved in a process that allows them to innovate. And so we were able to engage with older adults and design this with the funding of uh, some research grants from the Canadian government. And um, it's been really successful. And we've been seeing a lot of benefits um, on the ground in some of our care homes. From the Spark Archives, 2017, tech entrepreneur Peter Sprague. There are 48 million people out there with hearing aids, perfectly good for hearing voice, and I hear you with about a 2% distortion, but I don't know what you sound without the distortion. But if you were a piano and I heard you with 2% distortion, it would sound like the piano had never been tuned. I see. And what we're trying to do is putting a high fidelity system in the glasses. 
Actually, it'll look pretty much like a normal pair of glasses from the front, but uh, we're building them so that they'll be your standard hearing aid. Uh, and then we have one thing that everybody who wears hearing aids is going to love, which is basically if you have a problem of being deaf, which I have, you tend to also read lips. You look at people's faces. Mm-hmm. If the face is a two-year-old who's talking to your knee and happens to be your grandchild, you keep saying what? And if you say what to your average two or three-year-old of about 10 times in a minute, the kid is going to decide that granddaddy's not very bright. Hmm. So we put in a thing called the what button. You'll have a little button right at your forehead, just at the hinge. And if you touch it once, you get the last three seconds amplified and back played again. And if you hit it twice, you get the last six seconds. So now instead of what, you just tap your hinge and you hear your three-year-old louder. And this time you may not look so stupid. (laughs) I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. And this time we're talking about digital ageism, the way that manifests itself in algorithms and the promise of AI and tech for older people. Right now I'm speaking with Charlene Chu, a registered nurse and researcher who looks at the role of digital technology, particularly in the context of care. I think technology is undoubtedly a very useful tool, and I think it will serve as a means to enable people to age in place and age in home. Um, I think it will be the main factor that will allow us to decentralize healthcare away from hospitals and allow people to age in place. And we know from the research that the vast majority of people would rather age in place than anywhere else. And so technology will play a major role in supporting people to age at home. So whether that be smart home technologies, devices that can help monitor older adults at home, The question then is, how do we design these technologies so that they are easy to use, so that older adults feel that they are empowered when using these technologies, that they feel like that they still have ownership of the data that is being collected, and that it is accessible to people. Mm And so that includes having the correct digital infrastructure, that includes having technologies that are not cost prohibitive and, you know, having the right uh, supports in place to help older adults trust the technologies and welcome them into their homes. Yeah. So what needs to change here? Like, are there ways to address the age-related bias in technology, but in AI in particular that, that we've been talking about? Mm-hmm. So I think in general, one of the first things that we need to do is really understand that digital ageism and that age-related bias in technologies and artificial intelligence is a concern. In the same way that we understand AI is not objective and that it does hold biases around gender, around race, that so too is the same for age. And so I think we need to draw attention to this problem first and foremost. The second is I think we need to shift towards a culture in which we can invite older adults into um, the spaces and into the circles that are designing technologies to begin with. So being more inclusive in um, who is coming up with the ideas around the technology that is to be designed, who is coming up with 
uh, how they are deployed, how they are accessed. I think these are really important questions for people to consider and how we make this process more inclusive. I think currently many of these activities when it comes to technology design, product development, marketing is really dominated by younger people. And that means that the needs and values and ideas of older adults may not be captured. So we need to change the culture around technology design so that we are more inclusive. And that means including people of all different ages, of all different backgrounds, so that technology can be more applicable to a larger audience. So does that look like something like co-design, like including older people from the very beginning of the design process? Exactly. So co-design methodologies, which is um, a tenet and principle that I use in a lot of my research, you know, this is based on user-centered design or human-centered design principles, where the ideas that are then, you know, advanced by researchers and developers come from people who will actually use them and reflect the needs and wants of the people that would be using them. What about government in all this? I mean, as you note in your report, regulation of AI in Canada is still in its relative infancy. Is there a role that government should play in addressing age bias in AI? So one of the things that we looked at in our review is a review of the legal literature. And what we found was that there was very little when it came to any kind of legal documentation around uh, age-related bias in AI. Any existing work was around uh, discriminatory policies of limiting opportunities for employment. So in the past, there have been reports of uh, targeted advertisements, for example, that only target people of a certain age demographic. Um, and so, of course, that limits opportunities for employment if you're not advertising to them. And so outside of that, as we uh, found, there's very little when it comes to uh, legal guidance. And, and certainly there's a lot that needs to be done in that field. Charlene, thanks so much for your insights on this. Thank you so much, Nora, for the invite. I really enjoyed this conversation. Charlene Chu is an assistant professor at the Lawrence S. Bloomberg Faculty of Nursing at the University of Toronto. You've been listening to Spark. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samarui Johannes, Matt Muse, and me, Nora Young. And by Nicole Dalmer and Charlene Chu. And from the Spark archives, Chip Conley, Ian Hosking, Peter Sprague, and the Elder Technology Assistance Group. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.